This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Ben and Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We got a great show for you today. We're continuing the book fair series, and we have with us um, Professor David Goldfield. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and he has a book out called The Gifted Generation. When government was good in Washington, and he is going to be speaking at the Miami Book Fair on November 18th at 2.30 and as part of a panel on American presidents. And um, so, Professor, are you with us? Yes, I am. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us. And um, tell us a little bit about um, what you do in, in, at Charlotte and what type what you teach there. I teach at the university, as you indicated, uh, and uh, primarily I teach American political history, uh, the history of the mouth, uh, and uh, urban history as well. And and you've written actually some award-winning books on the South, uh, including Cotton Fields and Skyscrapers, Black, White, and Still Fighting the Civil War. That's right, and we are still fighting the Civil War. I think so. I, that's why I wanted, I wanted to point that out, because I imagine at some point that's going to become relevant in our discussion. But um, your, your new book has a, a, an anti-bellum theme, let's say, excuse me, a post-bellum theme, and, and that is um, The Gifted Generation. Explain the concept to me. It's really about the first baby boomers um, between 1943 and 50s, uh, the United States uh, experienced a significant uh, uptick in uh, births. Uh, and um, demographers consider that uh, this baby boom uh, began uh, in the early 1940s. And unlike the uh, census, they uh, break it up into two different periods. And the early period from the early 1940s to the early 1950s 
uh, is really what I call the gifted generation. Gifted uh, be, not because they were smarter or better than everyone else, although certainly I like to think that about myself, uh, but uh, rather because of the gifts they received from the federal government uh, that expanded the, the opportunities uh, for people who were previously marginalized or not really involved in the American enterprise. And, and so the, the, the gifted generation is a term for a, a segment of the, the baby boom generation. Do you have a term for the, sec- the other half? I'm just curious. Uh, well, um, the, uh, the left behind generation, I guess you could call it, but, uh, uh no, uh, so it's in, well, it's interesting it's, that was your first there, response. There are some actually. demographers who, who have, uh, who have concepts, uh, uh, for it. Uh, uh, the boomer bust generation, for example, is, a, is another one, but, uh, they grew up under very different circumstances because the latter part of the boom, um, they came to adulthood at a time when the federal government was retrenching, uh, right. and uh, they did not get to uh, experience the types of gifts uh, and opportunities that the early boomers experienced. I, I mentioned that because I've met the one of the demographers who who coined the term Generation Jones, mm-hmm. and be, one not just because of the anonymity it, it suggests. And you know the fact that they've been overlooked in many ways, uh, or lumped together with the the, the statistical baby boom, but um, the phrase Jones is sometimes said in, in disappointment. You know Jones, and or you're Jonesing for something, and um, and so that's where that was coined from, which is kind of interesting. How how you that you said the overlooked generation, and um, for me it's it's a it's a it's a personal issue because I'm the youngest of seven children. And so my my oldest sister is definitely a gifted generation child, and um, when whereas I'm clearly in the in the other class, and nothing defines this more, which is fitting because we're, we're talking today on the 30th anniversary of the um, Grenada invasion, and I, I comment how when my sister was in college, her her f- second semester of college she did not have to take final she had the option of um not taking final exams in term grade because the campus was partially shut down due to protest over cambodia and whereas <laughs> in my in my generation the, the only thing we had was um grenada and it's just it's two different experiences so, um I'm, i just find it interesting that you i'm glad that you you, you see that the separate nature of the two er- errors but sorry i, I could, took you on a, a, a detour but um so let's talk about the the gifted generation and and how you know the benefits they they earned um obviously one of them came from um the, the new deal that was put in place under franklin roosevelt but your your book tends to focus on some of the, the post-war presidents um, right. Uh, it focuses on uh, Harry Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and Lyndon B. Johnson. And what's what's interesting, and I don't know how much credence you give these rankings, but um, in the latest, in you know, 2017 C-SPAN historian rank of the presidents, they came in in order. Truman was sixth, Eisenhower was fifth, and Johnson was tenth. So all of these, you know, 
now 50 years later in some respects or more, um, all of these presidents are, are still deemed quite consequential presidents. Yes, they are. And uh, the interesting thing about these three presidents is that they had a lot of similarities. Uh, they came from an area that uh, is called the middle border, that, that is not really south, not really west. In fact, uh, Truman and Eisenhower grew up uh, about 150 miles from each other, and uh, Harry Truman uh, roomed together with uh, one of Dwight Eisenhower's brothers in, in Kansas City. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson uh, grew up uh, in an area called the uh, Balcones Fault, uh, which is in Texas and separates East Texas, which is more southern, uh, from West Texas, uh, which is more western. Uh, so they grew up in areas that didn't have strong uh, regional identifications necessarily. They also grew up um, in, on the edge of poverty. Uh, they also shared the fact that uh, they grew up with strong mothers uh, and very weak fathers. Uh, and I think uh, this idea of uh, attachment, uh, the son's attachment to his uh, mama, played a major role in the development of uh, each of these uh, three presidents uh, because their moms uh, inculcated in them a sense not only of morality but also a sense of learning uh, and uh, education that they uh, kept with them uh, throughout their lives. But most of all, uh, the importance of public service. And all three, of course, uh, went into public service. All three experienced the depression and particularly what the government uh, could do uh, for people, what the federal government could do for people uh, in a time of economic crisis. And then all three, of course, experienced uh, World War II, Dwight Eisenhower, of course, most of all. Yes. And uh, the th uh, saw firsthand uh, how the federal government could uh, uh, operate uh, in a a very dangerous situation and provide not only for national defense, uh, but also create opportunities for individuals at home. And and so let's let's start with Truman. And I'm actually a, a big fan of Truman. Um, in part, I mean, we have this whole discussion about, you know, who won the Cold War and this, you know, triumphalism of, you know, the people who War. And I, I like to point out that you know, Ronald Reagan's Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall speech and John F. Kennedy's, you know, Econ Berliner speech would never have happened were it not for Harry Truman and the Berlin Airlift. That's true. Uh, that's true. Uh, uh, Harry Truman, of course, had uh, considerable experience in, uh, in foreign affairs because of his service in the U.S. Senate. Uh, during World War II and heading up a, a committee that uh, oversaw the uh, leasing of uh, contracts for defense contractors. So he was very well versed in, in foreign affairs uh, and uh, worked very closely with our allies, including the Soviet Union, of course, uh, during the Second World War. And, but you highlight Truman for a different reason. You, right. I, 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 uh, um, I highlight Truman because he was a son of a gun. Uh, he was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you if know, only he that was, were a party, right? 
<laughs> if only that were a party. Yeah, he had his ideas about things, and uh, by golly, he wasn't going to uh, let uh, Congress uh, over uh, override him on any of those ideas, although they frequently uh, did, uh, particularly with respect to uh, civil rights. Uh, he uh, was the first president uh, since uh, Abraham Lincoln, really, to uh, promote uh, civil rights as a major policy issue uh, during uh, his administration. Uh, he was also uh, very interested uh, in immigration reform because at the time that he was president, uh, the United States was uh, operating under the 1924 Immigration Act, uh, which severely restricted uh, immigrants from southern and eastern Europe. And it wasn't a coincidence that uh, the vast majority, in fact, almost all of uh, these potential immigrants, uh, were uh, Roman Catholic or Jewish. Uh, the feeling was in, in America at that time, among the general public, uh, and there are polls to support this, that uh, these individuals, uh, the Jewish and uh, Roman Catholic uh, immigrants, uh, would not assimilate well into American society uh, that was dominated by a culture of individuals who traced their ancestry back to Northern Europe. Now, of course, the Irish uh, part of nor Northern Europe, but they were not included in this uh, in the geographically banned. Uh, to uh, the status of Southern and Eastern European uh, immigrants. And this was a particularly important issue in the years immediately after World War II because there were literally hundreds of thousands of refugees displaced, pers uh, uh, displaced pers persons camps um, in uh, Western Europe uh, who had uh, fled uh, communist uh, regimes and takeovers in Eastern Europe, and who also had survived the Holocaust. Uh, and they were waiting to get into the United States, and the uh, quotas uh, were extremely low for them. For example, um, Britain, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, was about uh, 30,000 immigrants a year. Uh, Greece's quota uh, was uh, 320 uh, a year. So you see the discrimination, and Truman wanted to end that, but the Congress thwarted him on that, and he tried a few end runs were only partially successful, as did Eisenhower. And this remained the fact until Lyndon B. Johnson in 1965 pushed through immigration reform and finally ended the quotas against the immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. Well, what's interesting about that is, in, is that it was Johnson, because not only did Johnson kind of reshape the face of America through the Civil Rights Act, um, but he also reshaped the face of America um, through the immigration changes, and and yeah, made yeah, you know, absolutely we are we are the diverse and the diverse nation we are today is you know, partly because of the Civil Rights Act and partly because of the immigration reform. Yeah, it, it, um, it, it was a different world in, uh, in the 1940s and, and 1950s. Uh, I, I can remember uh, going up to New Hampshire uh, 
uh, as a kid uh, for the uh, couple of weeks in summer because I had pretty bad allergies. I was living in, in New York at the time uh, w- with my family. Uh, and um, Where would you go? Uh, we would go to New Hampshire in the heart of the White Mountains. Okay. Uh, and uh, one of uh, my parents' uh, friends would would drive us up. We we were we were too poor to own a car, so uh, we had to rely on him. And uh, I recall very distinctly he would uh, we would be driving down this highway in in New Hampshire, and there'd be um, uh, tourist hotels uh, here and there. And he would point out the ones that were quote restricted. Uh, that is, uh, did not allow uh, Jews uh, to stay there or Jews and Roman Catholics to stay there. I remember very well uh, uh, one summer going to the Berkshires in Massachusetts, in Lenox, Massachusetts, and we sat down uh, at, a, um, uh, at a hotel restaurant and had a very nice uh, meal. And, and my father said, well, uh, my father was a Navy veteran, by the way, of 15 years, and my father said, yeah, you know, this is a nice place. Maybe we can stay here tonight and use this as a, uh, a base to explore the Berkshires. And, and, you know, the kids, my sister and I, you know, yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, so we asked the, uh, he asked the waitress um, if uh, they had any rooms available. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, w- we do. Well, after lunch, we went to the, first, uh, the front desk. And as um, uh, soon as he told them, uh, our name, uh, which is a, a Jewish name, um, the uh, gentleman at the desk said, "Oh, geez, I'm sorry, we're we're full up." And my father later said that he was uh, really looking at a blank book, uh, and uh, there was nothing nothing there. It was clear that uh, we were not supposed to be staying at that hotel. Uh, so uh, these experiences stick with you. Uh, the, the irony of all this is that we also tra- traveled extensively in the South and never confronted any of these uh, incidents, <laughs> only, <laughs> only uh, in New England. But, but nevertheless, these types of incidents uh, uh, stick with you. Uh, and it was clear in, in the 1940s and 1950s that uh, Jews, and to a lesser extent, the Roman Catholics, were really not part of the American enterprise yet. But by 1965, this had changed, not completely, uh, but uh, at least to the extent that we felt that uh, the sky was the limit for our opportunities. And the same was true uh, to a lesser extent for women and for African Americans. Uh, So this was a really formative period, these 20 years after World War II that I uh, write about. It was really a formative period uh, in holding America to its founding ideals. Uh, and the sad thing about it uh, is that uh, we've regressed since then, and I talk about that in the book as well. Now, one of the things Truman did was he integrated the military. Well, and- um, you know, um, that's the common knowledge, uh, so to speak. Uh, he tried to integrate the, uh, the military, let's put it right. that way, uh, which is a very uh, noble effort, of course. Uh, but uh, the military brass dragged its feet. And by the time Eisenhower took office in January 1953, 
the military and facilities, particularly the facilities, uh, the bases in the South, were not integrated. But nobody, nobody would disobey a former general like Eisenhower. And Eisenhower saw this uh, and saw the fact that uh, basically the military brass had defied Truman's orders uh, and ordered immediately uh, that all uh, bases and all units uh, be integrated. Uh, in fact, uh, a, a relatively little-known uh, thing about uh, Eisenhower when he was uh, commanding general uh, for the Allied forces during World War II is that uh, contrary to Pentagon directives, he actually used black troops in white units. Uh, and some of these units uh, were led by southern white officers. Uh, and uh, in their reports, if you read the reports of these southern white officers, they are highly commendable of, of the valor of, of these African-American troops. Interesting. And but I think, it, well, the, I know for a fact the experience from Truman in pushing for integration and the the backlash he got would later um, become very much in focus under President Clinton when they had the, the debate over gays in the military. Since so many of the same arguments that had been used to you know, kind of rebuff Truman were now being recirculated in, in this case with respect to gays in the military. Uh, the exact same arguments. Uh, the arguments that, uh, oh, it would affect uh, morale. Uh, oh, they wouldn't uh, fit in. Uh, you, you could just recycle uh, the arguments. It's the same with uh, immigration reform. Uh, the same arguments used against uh, Roman Catholics and Jews are the same arguments today used against uh, Hispanics or Mexicans in particular. Uh, oh, they won't assimilate. Uh, they're uh, prone to uh, crime. Uh, they're poorly educated. They have no skills and so on. You, you could recycle these uh, old arguments. You go back to the 19th century and recycle uh, these arguments. Uh, in some ways, it's pretty discouraging because uh, we haven't learned. Uh, we keep on repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Well, in, in this debate in particular, what was especially ironic was you know, when Clinton came into office in 93, the, the person making these arguments was the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Colin Powell, an African-American. <laughs> and, and someone who, who clearly the armed forces had gotten over those very same objections with respect to his race, but now somehow he thought it couldn't accommodate uh, you know, the, the gays in the military. But... Um, so one thing I think we, we have to accommodate, though, is uh, our advertisers. So we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, we'll have more with David Goldfield, the gifted generation when government was good in Washington. After these messages, you're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjord, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. Book lovers and hundreds of compelling contemporary authors are heading to Miami for the 34th Annual Miami Book Fair, Friday, November 17th through Sunday, November 19th. See in person amazing authors, including Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Al Franken, Russell Banks, Michael Eric Dyson, Armistead Malpin, Angela J. Davis, Scott Turo, Walter Isaacson, and many more. The 34th Annual Miami Book Fair. For more information, visit MiamiBookFair.com. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking to David Goldfield, author of The Gifted Generation. Now, David, um, we were talking about Truman and the civil rights issues. Um, well, let's talk about Eisenhower for a minute. Um, he... I, I read something on the background of the interstate highway system, and part of what led him to push for this was that as a soldier in you know in between World War One and World War Two, he size in which you know, the the army tried to mobilize troops you know to propel some theoretical attack, and it took weeks. To get the troops to, to this to the designated spot, just because of our infrastructure, and, oh, and so yeah, yeah. And, and so that's why what now are to push for the interstate highway system as is partly as a, as much as a defense measure as it was an economic development measure. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, in 1919, Eisenhower led a convoy out of Washington, D.C. They were headed for San Francisco. Uh, part of the reason uh, for the trip uh, was, as you indicated, to uh, transfer equipment and, and troops uh, and uh, also uh, to uh, check out the uh, highway system uh, in case of uh, some national defense emergency where you have to move troops over and equipment over long distances how quickly you can get there. Well, it was a debacle from the, from the beginning. The, the road system just uh, wasn't there to support it. And uh, you said weeks. Actually, it took months to, uh, to get from Washington to San Francisco. 
And it was at that time that uh, Eisenhower, the germ of the idea of uh, having a national highway system, uh, first uh, came to Eisenhower's mind. And uh, one of the first things he did as, as president uh, was to uh, push this on, on Congress. Congress balked, by the way, because it, it was the largest public works project in American history and therefore extremely expensive. Uh, nowadays, when you talk about billions of dollars, it doesn't seem to raise any eyebrows. But in the, in the early 1950s, that was a heck of a, uh, a price tag. And I believe there was something in the ballpark of like 3% of GDP that they were spending on infrastructure. And the odd thing being that this is from a Republican administration. Yeah, you, you know, um, uh, the deeper I got into Eisenhower, and I, I looked through his uh, his letters, and, and particularly his private correspondence with his with his brothers, uh, the greater your appreciation first for his uh, intelligence uh, and uh, his uh, great broad grasp of uh, a lot of different things. Uh, and yet uh, also uh, his common decency and his understanding above all else that the United States uh, had moved from a country of small towns and farms, uh, a country dominated by white Protestant men, to a much more diverse country, uh, a country that had industrialized great cities and that was moving even faster into a post-industrial era. So he grasped all of that, and he knew all of that, and he recognized that uh, public policy uh, has to follow suit. He was very fond of quoting Abraham Lincoln's uh, dictum that uh, the government should do what the people by themselves cannot do individually. Uh, and that was his principle. Of course, many in the Republican Party <laughs> would argue that the government shouldn't do anything right, uh, except right. provide for the uh, national uh, defense. And he was very frustrated at several uh, points during his administration. And uh, he, he said at one point um, that, look, if, if I, I can't get out of from under these reactionary Republicans. I'm going to leave and, and form an independent party. That's how frustrated uh, he was. Uh, so uh, Eisenhower really, uh, I think, uh, made a major difference. And of all the, uh, the three presidents I cover, uh, Eisenhower's role was uh, most surprising and uh, most effective. And what's also interesting, you know, not only did he frame investment in public works as a, a a defense necessity, he did the same with education after Sputnik. Yes, he did. And this is interesting because uh, his education policy really followed uh, after the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik in October of 19. 57. Uh, it, it's interesting because uh, for Americans at the time, uh, it was somewhat equivalent to the attack on 9-11-2001. Uh, uh, it was a sudden wake-up call that, hey, 
the uh, Soviet Union has this capability of sending satellites into orbit. They could use that uh, capability for military purposes, and God knows could rain uh, atomic weapons uh, on, on us uh, very, very easily from outer space. Uh, Eisenhower's response to that was very different from the response of George W. Bush. For George W. Bush, uh, the uh, response was to uh, make war. Uh, and we're still fighting those wars that he right. made. For Eisenhower, the response was not war. The response was rather to invest in human capital, uh, to uh, build <coughs> education so that we could compete better with the Soviet Union. Uh, he held a, a press conference uh, right after uh, Sputnik, and uh, a reporter from NBC, a national broadcasting company, uh, asked him, he said, aren't you uh, concerned that um, the Soviets are going to use these capabilities that they obviously uh, have? Uh, and uh, why aren't you building up the military accordingly? And Eisenhower, in his usual sort of offhanded style, which is why people often underestimated him uh, as, a, as a public speaker, said, well, you, you know, I, I don't think uh, we have anything to fear uh, from, from the moon. He didn't think that was going uh, to happen. Instead, uh, he uh, sponsored the... Uh, 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 National Defense Education uh, uh, Fellowships uh, that uh, allowed uh, thousands of uh, youngsters uh, college education in the sciences, social sciences, and uh, uh, the technological fields, uh, and was instrumental uh, in uh, developing uh, such things we take for granted today as computers, uh, the uh, internet, uh, the Intel uh, processor, uh, these all derived from individuals uh, who had received this assistance from the government. Well, also you mentioned the internet, uh, that itself was a defense project. In yes, yes, and one of the unfortunate things is that because of budget cuts, uh, over the past uh, 40 years, our lead in uh, innovation uh, and technology uh, has declined. And I think by uh, estimates have it that by 2023, uh, the Chinese uh, will uh, be number one in the world in terms of technology. America was always, always, uh, at least since the end of the Civil War, uh, always first to the future. Uh, now, uh, we're uh, we're not uh, now. No. We're, we're we're talking about uh, budget cuts, uh, tax re reform, deregulation. Um, we sort of lost our moxie. We've lost our confidence. We've lost our swagger. And the way to get it back is to re-energize our federal government. And you know, one case in particular would be um, alternative fuels. Yeah, and yeah. for many years we were the leader in that, and and still to a large extent are, but the government doesn't want, especially the current government, does not want to encourage that, even though one of the biggest proponents of you know, alternative fuels is defense. 
Right. Uh, this is a good example of uh, how the uh, corporates, uh, corporations uh, and uh, the big donors uh, have a vast influence over our political system. And it's not only the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party uh, as well. One of the first things uh, Ronald Reagan did when he came into office in January 1981 was to remove the solar panels uh, that Jimmy Carter had placed there. It was more over than the White House pool, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was it was more than a symbolic uh, move. It, it was uh, an indication uh, to uh, corporate interests, particularly oil and natural gas, that this administration is going to be different. And of course, the people that um, Reagan appointed to the cabinet. Uh, responsible uh, for the environment, uh, responsible for public lands. Uh, people like Anne Gorsuch, Gorsuch Burford, the uh, mother of the new Supreme Court Justice. Yes. Uh, people like Donald Todell, who when uh, confronted with uh, evidence uh, that the ozone layer was dissipating, said, well, uh, the the way to deal with that is not through regulation, but uh, just use a higher grade of suntan oil. Uh, so uh, th these are the types of people Reagan brought into office, the people who would dismantle, who would deregulate. And these are the same types of individuals that Donald Trump is bringing into his cabinet and into federal positions. Then, and there's a couple of things about that I'd like to discuss. And one is that you talk about wanting Trump, let's bring a businessman into government. Even though there's nothing in business that prepares you for running a, a, a federal government. There's the no, whole dealing with Congress, dealing with foreign leaders. You're making decisions that have, that really aren't in cape, or can't be reduced to a bottom line. But, bit, but putting that aside, there is one concept that is very much a business concept that does apply, and, and I think you're hitting on, is that you have to invest in your business and your productivity. And time and time again, you know, Trump and you know, the Republicans have chosen not to. No, they haven't. Uh, and uh, the Democrats, by the way, are not off the hook on, on this either. Uh, in 1972, after the McGovern uh, debacle in the 1972 presidential election when Nixon won in a landslide, the Democratic Party uh, made a specific uh, pivot uh, away from their broad-based uh, working class, uh, middle class constituency, and they decided to go after the new and rising professional class, uh, which they which they did. Uh, and one of the elements uh, of uh, catering to that class uh, was deregulation. You recall that uh, Bill Clinton, when he became, uh, who was a, uh, by the way, one of the architects of this new democracy. Uh, Bill Clinton, when he came into office, uh, he um, trashed the Glass-Steagall, which had separated uh, investment uh, banking from uh, deposit banking, uh, from retail banking, and uh, he also um, deregulated uh, several other uh, financial institutions. 
1996, he said, the era of big government is over. Well, he was about 20 years too, too late in that pronouncement because it had already been shrinking from the Carter administration very much through the uh, Reagan and, and Bush administrations. And then uh, the uh, final uh, nail uh, was uh, hammered by Bill uh, Clinton. Uh, Clinton also uh, inaugurated well, so-called welfare uh, reform, uh, which threw millions of um, poor Americans, primarily women with young children, uh, into poverty because uh, the welfare now was uh, tied to uh, employment, which is fine if you can find the jobs. Uh, but if you're a single mother with three or four uh, kids, uh, you can't find a job unless you find child care. And there was no provision for child care. And even if you do uh, find a job, uh, how are you going to uh, support it on a minimum wage that is actually less uh, than it was during the Eisenhower administration? And on that point, uh, I'm somewhat torn because uh, I, I, I campaigned for Bill Clinton, and uh, I'll be actually be going to Little Rock for the 25th anniversary of his election next month. But um, on the welfare reform, I, I also Peter Edelman, and and he's he's been a mentor to an extent, and he he resigned from the Clinton administration over welfare reform, even though you know Hillary his Clinton and uh, Rodham Clinton got her start in her out of law school working for his wife in, and uh, Marion Wright Edelman. And so you know, these Wright. guys had a, a long friendship that you know, was somewhat severed because of of the, that policy difference. You know, Edelman had been at uh, Department of Health and Human Service and, and stepped down in protest. So yeah, I understand that, but I also understand that when Reagan won, and there, there seems to be such a shift in the electorate, and there was a perception that the Democrats, one, were out of touch, that they had didn't weren't speaking to their middle class roots. And excuse me one second. And um, they they weren't speaking to their their base anymore. You know, the, the 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 Reagan won those Reagan Democrats up in in Macomb County, Michigan, and there was concern about how do we get them back. And I think what Clinton did was try to show that we can be a progressive government, but also be fiscally responsible. You know, we can be a democratic government, but still be strong on, you know, on defense. So I think that's what he was trying to do, was reshape the party in a way to show that we, we still have progressive priorities, but we also wanted to be a very a party of economic growth. That I, I don't think was central to, I think, you know, the failed campaign of, of Mondale or, or McGovern. And uh, so I, I think that's what he was trying to do. And... And he does a lot of people and critics, as you mentioned, you know, mentioned Glass-Steagall, which was actually an issue I worked on um, when I was in law school and working for a Washington law firm that lobbied on the issue. But um, but what people forget about Clinton was that the battle that led to the government shutdown was 
in over a budget fight with you know, Newt Gingrich and the Republicans. And where Clinton drew the line in the sand was cutting Medicaid and cutting the income tax credit. And Clinton had vastly increased the earned income tax credit. And it never really doesn't get a whole lot of credit for that, but it actually had the effect of leading to one of the first reductions in poverty in the U.S. since the Great Society. Bill Clinton was a moderate Republican president. And the idea that uh, he had to triangulate, as he would put it, uh, just doesn't wash from a historical uh, perspective. When Harry Truman submitted his civil rights proposal to uh, Congress in 1947, mm -hmm. uh, a grand total of 6% of the American people supported civil rights for African Americans. Uh, so th there was really no compulsion uh, in terms of public opinion, certainly no compulsion on the part of uh, Congress to deal with this, these issues. But a president is a leader, uh, and uh, sometimes a president has to go out in front of public opinion, not, as Obama put it, lead from behind. Right. And Truman felt that um, the morality uh, of uh, having African Americans as second-class citizens far outweighed the unpopularity of uh, any uh, civil rights initiative uh, that uh, he felt he had to put forth. Uh, and the bottom line, of course, was that uh, not only uh, didn't the civil rights um, initiatives not hurt him, uh, he was reelected, even though part of the Democratic Party split off. Uh, and he had the campaign not only uh, to his right, but uh, to his left when uh, Henry Wallace left the Democratic Party uh, to form the Progressive Party. So uh, Truman was true uh, to his beliefs that uh, unless the least of us uh, become a part of the American enterprise and have equality of opportunity, then the rest of us will not benefit. This is not a zero-sum game. Uh, if we're all in, then that benefits the entire nation. Well, when it comes to our advertiser, it is a zero-sum game. So we must take a, a short break. But when we come back, we'll be talking more with uh, Professor Gofield on the gifted generation. You're listening to Cyberlawn Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business -business podcast network. Through iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, we can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Email sales at webmasterradio.fm today and get your message delivered now. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. 
TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs sends you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're talking with Professor Goldfield about the gifted generation when government was good in Washington and um, Professor Goldfield teaches at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. He will be speaking at the Miami Book Fair on November 18th and he will be appearing on a panel on American presidents along with Alvin Felsenberg, uh, author of um, A Man and His Presidents, The Political Odyssey of William Buckley, who we also spoke with. So that should be an interesting discussion that you two will have. Um, Information about this book and um, Professor Goldfield's appearances are on our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And um, so, um, Professor Goldfield, your premise of your book is that War Boom was partly, largely a result of investment in government people, in, in infrastructure and the people of the United States. And then the prosperity that followed was, you know, people came back from World War II, they had the GI Bill advanced, and, you know, so basically this, this emerging was growing into a more affluent America because of, of these measures. And what went wrong and what do we need to do going forward? What went wrong? The government withdrew from uh, participation uh, in American society. <laughs> there were reasons for that. Uh, uh, there were civil disturbances uh, in the nation's cities, uh, Vietnam and, and Watergate. Uh, send off many people to the federal government and uh, forget about it. Uh, but um, more than that, uh, you had people, leaders, both parties, uh, the federal, pr- uh, federal footprint was too large and uh, it actually inhibited uh, economic uh, development. Uh, of course, that was not the case, as you indicated, uh, and the activist federal government after World War II in, in America uh, played a major role uh, in the prosperity uh, of the of the time period. So the Democrats moved right, and the Republicans moved far right, and you had the administration of uh, Ronald Reagan uh, in particular, beginning in January of 1981, that began a long series uh, that lasts to this day uh, of deregulating uh, government functions. Uh, 
and uh, lessening the footprint. If you, if you remember, uh, one of the things that uh, Reagan said, uh, and he repeated this over and over again, the uh, nine most frightening words in the English language are, uh, hello, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, never realizing the irony that he presided, presided over that very government. Well, it wasn't only... Or a, he was the son of someone who got a job through the WPA as yeah, well. Right, right, it, it, exactly. And, and, you know, there, and I refer to this in the book, that there's a letter uh, Ronald Reagan wrote uh, to Lyndon Johnson when Reagan was governor of California and Johnson was president. And it's uh, a pretty irate letter chastising Johnson for uh, cutting, cutting federal funding to uh, California uh, to uh, help uh, clean up uh, waste. Uh, and, and here you have uh, President Reagan uh, complaining about federal uh, programs. Right. But there were two problems with this. Uh, first, uh, the problem was that by lessening the federal uh, footprint, uh, you also lessen the reach of the government to uh, the population as a whole, to the Commonwealth. Uh, but second, it wasn't so much the disappearance of the federal government uh, as its skewed policies that benefited an increasingly small group of well-connected and wealthy donors and corporate leaders. This is really the uh, flip side of uh, the smaller federal uh, footprint. So it's not only the withdrawal of government, it is how government uh, withdrew and to the extent to which it now focused on deregulating uh, and, and removing protections from uh, consumers, uh, from the poor, and from the middle class. Uh, and the proof of this, it's not only my assertion, but the proof of this uh, is in the decline of the middle class as a percentage of um, all Americans, is decline of the working class. You know, people say, well, it's technology. You know, technology has changed. We're in the post-industrial uh, economy. We now have global uh, competition. You know, the fact is that if you look at Western Europe, they've experienced the same issues of technology and global competition, yet their middle class has expanded. Uh, their working class makes a decent wage. That is not the case in America. Um, yeah, we, uh, we don't support our families with the child care uh, facilities uh, and early childhood uh, education and paid family leave. Only a few countries in the world don't have that, and there are countries like Swaziland, for, for example. Uh, do we, and Togo, uh, do we want to uh, be uh, in, in that group? And that group exists primarily because they just flat out can't afford it. Uh, the tragedy is we can afford it, and we're not doing it. Uh, no, so it, for the past 40 years, uh, we've been on that track, and it's the wrong track and the wrong direction, and we need to change. Now, we only have five minutes left, but 
yeah, I, I watched your your presentation on on the book when you were in Moscow, and and I played it on YouTube, and then I, I just I kept, and the very next video that came up was from the HBO show Newsroom, which I don't know if you're familiar with. Right, sure, sure. And um, there's a, a, a clip that from the show that's gone viral, and it has, you know, the show is about a net, network, and the main character is the anchor of this um, news show. Right. And he's speaking at a college along with some other uh, journalists, and the question comes up, you know, about, you know, isn't America the, you know, the greatest country in the world? And of course, or why, what makes America the greatest country in the world? And, you know, of course, the other two give, you know, very pat answers. And he says, well, we're not, we used to be. But now when he lists a whole bunch of statistics that are just mind-numbing from, you know, being 20, 30, um, and this and that, he says, we used to be number one things. We used to be, you know, leading technology and um and but now what are we first in an incarceration <laughs> that that's that's what we do best and defense spending um and it's a, it's it's kind of interesting that they came right after yours right well uh as i've uh, said on many occasions i'm all for making america great again not necessarily the way that uh, president trump and his followers uh, would make America great again. Uh, going back to a time when uh, the federal government uh, acted on behalf of all the people, not only for a select few. And what what, so what is the reaction you're getting to this book in in this current age? Well, I haven't had. Uh, well, that's true. The book is supposed to coming out next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the book has uh, hasn't come out yet, but uh, the um, uh, pre. Uh, publication uh, reviews and comments have been uh, quite favorable and quite uh, positive. Uh, so I think the timing of this book is well suited to the time that we're living in. Uh, and above all, I, I think it's not a pessimistic book uh, in, in some respects, uh, in that the blueprint for how we get out of this situation, uh, the blueprint for how we can, in fact, really make America great again, uh, is the two decades after World War II. That is the blueprint for our future. If you want to look for a brighter future, look to our history. And very well said. And so you are also touring after, in addition to Miami, you will be in Kansas City. I notice you're going to uh, one of my favorite bookstores, Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C. Right. And you'll be coming out west to Roman's right. Bookstore in Pasadena. Correct. And uh, in the little time left we have, how if people want to learn more about you and your, your book, um, what's the best place to find you? The best place to find me is davidgoldfield.us. And uh, do you, are you on social media? Do you have Twitter? Uh, no, no. You might want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, it's a, it's it, good for promoting it, things. You know, you get, yeah, get, get it, the it, word it, out. it is. I, I've heard pros and cons about it, but we'll, we'll see what uh, what happens. Um, well, it, well um, we've only got a minute left, so I want to thank you again for joining us. It's been a great discussion, and I uh, wish you best of luck in Miami. And again, that will be um, on the 18th at 2.30. And um, everyone, that is David Goldfield, the gifted generation when government was good in Washington. Thanks for joining us. And that's all we have for today. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Um, be sure to check us out at the internetlawcenter.net. And for information on today's show, go to our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. And thanks again. We'll see you next week. This is Bennett Kelly. See you then. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. This is the story of the Wad. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.